Grassroots Community Network is now available to podcast. Enjoy all your favorite programming, whether you are making the commute to or from work, enjoying a jog through the mountains, or just hanging around the house. And don't forget that Grassroots offers over 4,000 shows on demand on our webpage, www.grassrootstv.org. Simply use the search tool in the upper right corner to locate your content. There are many ways to connect with your community. For podcasts, visit our homepage on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. All direct links, including a direct link to subscribe to our RSS feed, can be found under the search bar on our homepage. And remember, you are Grassroots Community Network. Please consider contributing by visiting our website at www.grassrootstv.org or by calling us at 970-925-8000. Thank you. Good evening. So um, first of all, I want to thank my wife, who's, this is her project, her inspiration, and her energy that puts this series together. And so I want to thank her very much. Um, also, in introducing the Sakyong Nipom Rinpoche, he's a very special guest and a, one of the highest, you know, uh, incarnate lamas. Um, he is also the head of the Shambhala, um, uh, which is a a global network of meditation and retreat centers, um, which is grounded in the inherent goodness in humanity. Sakyong literally means earth protector. He is a Dharma king, and he is head of this uh, Shambhala lineage. Um, I'd like to also mention that Sakyong is um, a best-selling author. Um, his, he's written many books, including Turning the Mind into an Ally, Ruling Your World, um, uh, and uh, running with the mind of uh, meditation and the Shambhala principle. He's also a return guest. Many years ago, I was fortunate enough to um, uh, mediate a panel with some illustrious other guests, which the Rinpoche was one of the guests at the Ideas Festival many, many years ago. And during that talk, um, we had a typical Q&A, and at the very end, we had a last question, and um, when the question came up, out of the right side of my eye, the other two luminaries in the panel kind of gave me a little nod, no, we don't want to take that question. <laughs> it was a bit of a wild question. The question was, um, what are, to, to the panelists, what are you going to say on your deathbed? And so as the other two panelists sort of sh shook me off, the Rinpoche looked very calm and collected. I said, I asked him the question, Rinpoche, what are you going to say um, on your deathbed? And he said, very quickly, he said, I'll be back. <laughs> so <laughs> further evidence that enlightenment and wisdom can also have a great sense of humor. Without further ado, Rinpoche. So good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be here and uh, to be in your presence and to uh, be the Aspen Institute. 
and to be invited by both uh, Mr. and Mrs. Murdoch. Um, for me, it's, it's, um, I feel very close to Aspen and also the, uh, I've been following the progress of the Ideas Fest and I feel like that in many ways that there's been a tremendous amount of um, good energy and um, insight that is coming from this, this valley and many of you that is influencing and hopefully changing um, the future. And so I'm really honored to be part of this and I feel like um, that I would like to share uh, at a particular time about sort of the future of uh, where we're going. And I know that uh, tonight's basic topic and discussion is the notion of uh, peace. And um, if peace, making peace possible, and if peace is possible. So I think probably you would guess where I stand on this point. But um, I'm optimistic about it, but at the same time I feel like there's uh, a lot to do. And I feel that um, <clears throat> right now we're living in a time which I consider to be sort of a, a crossroads in terms of humanity and where we are, and that um, much of the future of our planet and what is happening is very much in our hands and in terms of how we, um, how we handle ourselves, our own mind, and how we relate to each other and how we relate to the environment and so forth. And I think that one of the sort of major sort of elements to the amount of um, fear, I would say, the amount of aggression and the amount of speed that our world is facing right now is obviously at, at a very intense level and something that um, all of us experience. And one of the privileges I have of, of traveling is that I get to see different parts of the world. And um, there is, I think, a collective question, no matter where you are um, in the world right now, about who are we and where are we going as people, as, a, as humanity? So I think the notion of peace could be seen as a very sort of idealized version of, of what the world could be. The notion of peace could be seen as something that could be very intellectual. But I feel like the notion of peace at a personal level of how we, how we are, our own sense of happiness, and the world is that it is very much um, one of the most sort of uh, poignant and personal questions that I think everybody is asking in their own way. And so this is a time where I believe that you could almost say the big questions need to be asked. The big questions of who are we, how are we handling ourselves, and what is, how does humanity regard itself? And so there's a lot of, I think, um, sort, of, <clears throat> sort of given that we're, we're entering a, a period of time where we think that peace may be not possible. And uh, a lot of the notion of peace is very external. But there's also the aspect of peace, you know, if it's going to be sustainable, has to come from within and has to come from some sort of understanding of who we are as people and as humanity. So one of the approaches that I feel that um, I would like to present is just the notion of uh, original peace, the sense of can, can we as human beings at an innate, personal, and, you know, um, fundamental level, can we as human beings be at a 
state of non-aggression? Uh, can the human mind function that way? Can the heart manifest that way? And a lot of the external um, aggression that we see and a lot of instability we see is really a reflection of how we regard ourselves as people. And so one of the basic, I think, elements is coming is, again, coming back to the notion of who are we? And, you know, when we're living in a climate where most of the time people regard humanity as selfish and um, as <clears throat> faulted, and there's a, a sense of that we are, um, have a deep sense of uh, inadequacy. So one of the basic elements that um, I work with is that can we begin to look at this storyline? Can we begin to look at how we regard ourselves? Because I feel like how we as human beings regard ourselves at a very intimate level has a profound effect on how we live our world and how we live our life and how we um, relate to everything. And so right now, um, the story that we are sort of telling ourselves is that um, there is a level of imperfection and there's a level of aggression, there's a level of selfishness that we all have. And everything in the world that we see, more and more things tend to sort of support this. But right now is, I think, a very important time where we can look at this storyline. What, what are we telling ourselves? Who are we as people? And so therefore, one of the most important issues, you could say, along with environment and, and um, uh, sort of global warming and these other issues, is the question of human nature. Who are we as people? And so I feel that even though it's very um, sort of subtle in some ways, how we regard and how we hold ourselves as people begins to affect how we regard others and how we live in the world. And so this is, I feel like it's not a spiritual question. And even though I'm dressing the part. So it's, it's not, it may sound funny coming from me, but I feel like right now, all the spiritual traditions are challenged. All the institutions are challenged. Government is challenged. We're at a point where nobody really knows what to do. And so I think these forums are very important. I feel like these discussions are very important. But there needs to be a kind of a communal self-reflection of who we are as people. And so whether, whether we approach that through meditation, whether we approach that through other contemplative situations, but we do need to look at that kind of issue of who are we. And so in this way, um, I feel like some kind of subtle you know, humanity in some ways just taking a pause and wondering what is going on. When do these pauses happen? Usually when there is something horrific that happens. There's something that stops everything, stops us, us in our tracks, and we wonder what is going on. So can we come out of this, and can we look at this? And can we begin to examine who we are as people from every aspect of our uh, life? So right now, we are living in a world where we have assumed that, that we are um, almost incapable of having a level of peace. That, that, that at an internal level, it is sort of not possible. So therefore, if there is going to be any external levels of peace, the peace is a very kind of um, forced. 
And one way to look at it is, is that what Martin Luther King would call a negative piece, a piece where it's just sort of everybody behaving. But there is not a sense of peace being dynamic and not a piece of sense of, of, of uh, freedom or um, liberation. But there more is, is, is sort of like um, a tension that is taking place. So one of the elements that I feel like is that it's a, whether it is a human issue, whether it is a communal issue, that something has to, um, <clears throat> something has to sort of shift in us personally. So at this level, and I feel like right now, one of the reactions that is happening is that there is a lot of interest in meditation, and there's a lot of interest in how to work with at least I can have some peace, even though I cannot do much about what is happening externally. But I believe how we relate to ourselves and the kind of attitude we take to ourselves will begin to affect the environment. So in this way, you know, I'm delighted that there's more interest in meditation. And finally, we have the science to back it, so that's always good. <clears throat> People always ask me, well, you know, what, what do I think about all this research? I said, it's great. But um, I said, you know, in Tibet, we had our own version of research, which was called sitting in a cave for a long time. <laughs> and, you know, I always joke because people are surprised that, you know, say meditation is, is um, don't be fooled by its inactivity. So it looks like somebody's not doing anything, but a tremendous amount is taking place. There's a tremendous amount of um, power and, and insight and wisdom being developed. And so I always say that, you know, in Tibet it was 1,500 years of, of research, you could say, in some ways. And um, so now we can actually see what's happening. And uh, one of the things is that when I went to Tibet, I, you know, I was born in India, but when I went to Tibet, I realized one thing. Nobody does something in Tibet in a frivolous manner. It's a very intense environment. And so it wasn't like that meditation was a fad in Tibet. It was something that was needed to survive and needed to be passed on. And also there was a tremendous amount of transformation taking place. And um, so this kind of wisdom is now here and is being, is being passed on. And so we have that um, kind of transformative element. But one of the elements that I feel is that I would say I'm concerned about is that meditation and the tradition of working with our mind and body is a very human thing. Um, it's a very human activity. And one of the basic principles is that of meditation is trust in the human being. It comes back to this notion of who we are and how we can be. And one of the elements is very much that um, are we using now meditation from this point of view of trying to cover something up or to bring something out? And one of the concerns I had was if meditation um, is being as a, used as a tool uh, to remove a part of us that we don't like about ourselves, then it just adds to the whole thing. And so at some innate level, <clears throat> who, who are we? And so from this point of view, 
Meditation is ultimately about being able to relax with who you are. And if at the deep core level we do not like ourselves and we do not trust ourselves, then it is very hard to relax with ourselves. And then meditation becomes just another thing to add on. So part of the, the development that's taking place is that meditation can be a very powerful way of self-reflection. And it is not just simply positive thinking, but it is a deep human journey that is taking place. But it is a, it is a journey where we're accepting the, in, the, the whole person. And the ability to do that is being able to work with um, our seeming imperfections and being able to hold that. And so we're living at a, I feel like part of our culture right now is this, there's this real rub of who are we and how we can be. And so meditation can play, a, uh, can play as, a, as part of that, but I feel like it cannot completely solve the issue if at a basic level, as humans, we do not trust ourselves. Another way of looking at it is, is that, have we given up on ourselves? Have we basically said, um, we're just gonna have to make do? So I feel like this is the kind of the transition that we're going through. And we've had a long history, both in the East and the West, of philosophy and thought. And we're coming to a particular crossroads of how we're going to move forward. And so part of this is that the relationship between how we hold ourselves, how we relate to who we are, you could say it is ourselves communicating with who we are, how we regard our heart and mind. Um, one of the basic approaches that in the Shambhala tradition, we say we look at ourselves as basically good, as fundamentally complete. Another way to look at it is uh, fundamentally worthy, that we are worthy to be. There's some kind of innate dignity as a person. And so, so much struggle and so much confusion happens because people in many parts of the world are not given that dignity and are not supported to allow for them to self, to think of themselves in a dignified manner. So there's a, a real sort of um, element that can, can we allow ourselves to do that in this particular way? And can we relate to ourselves and communicate with our own heart and mind in that way? So I would say that the almost invisible communication of how we're relating to our own mind and heart is powerful. And even though we cannot see it, how we feel about ourselves, how we relate to who we are, not in an ego-centered way particularly, but as a human being, and allowing ourselves to feel and connect, allowing ourselves to see and hear and touch. Very simple, but very profound elements. So we're living in a world where we are pushing ourselves to be more and more um, <clears throat> sort of progressive, but at the same time, there's an element of we are kind of losing touch with our basic sense of who we are. And so this element, I, again, it may seem like a spiritual element or a meditative element, but I feel like it's a human element. And when this is not addressed, then there is you know, ill health in the body. There is a lack of mental stability, and then there is not a, not a sense of uh, well-beingness altogether. So the communication with ourselves is not good, 
we're, we're suffering or there's an inadequacy and there's a sense of tension and anxiety at some level. So when we have that kind of communication with ourselves, naturally then we begin to generate that to others. <clears throat> so I'm you know, a big believer that meditation is not just simply in inactivity. It is not just trying to hide from the world. When you meditate, you have to be present, and you have to be present with yourself. You have to be present in time and space, but you have to be present with what's happening. And when you do that, we become stronger, we become more clear, and this is what really the, the, the obvious benefits are, and there's a sense of being alive. So meditation is very much not about trying to escape. So people who come and say, I'm trying to sort of check out for a while, that, that's not meditation. It's called spacing out. So, you know, this is, this is very much just about being present and being, being very, very grounded in the situation. And when we do that, we feel fuller. And part of that is, is that when you meditate, you're learning how to work with your own sense of who you are. And when you do that and you feel, you feel who you feel, you feel yourself, you feel your breath, you feel about how you feel that day, those are invisible passageways being opened. And so when you feel, and you actually care about how you feel, not in a kind of um, sort of overly sensitive way, you could say, but you really feel, I feel like at that moment, then you're opening the pathways to communicate with others. If you don't care about how you feel, you can, you're not going to care about how other people feel. Then all of a sudden, there's this kind of separation from the world. And when you have this level of separation, there, the human communication breaks down at a very fundamental level. We feel unappreciated, and we're unable to be magnanimous with others. We're unable to be accommodating to others. We can barely look at others, and rather, rather even to deal with their issues. So there's a real sense of, I feel like peace is a very kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's a long-term solution. It's a lifestyle, you could say. And there's no easy kind of fix to the whole thing. Aggression seemingly is much more rapid and quick, but also brings more instability. And so we're in, we're in a very interesting phase where we want things to be quicker, but a lot of the solutions that we want are going to have to be long-term. In order to do that, there needs to be a sense of how we develop that kind of um, almost long-term approach for our own being. So from that point of view, um, my feeling is, is that once you have the personal experience of, of our own um, sense of mind and body, that we are not afraid of ourselves. When that occurs, the seed of courage is planted where we don't, are not afraid of others and the difference of others. There's some kind of basic, some, some kind of basic strength that gets planted. And I see that we have an option. We have an option of either watering that fear that's there, or we can water the, the strength that's there. And so meditation has that ability, and these contemplative practices have that ability to foster the elements that we would like. From that point of view, it is a very proactive approach to life. We are trying to lead it the way we would want. But in order to do that, we, we do need to ask these questions of, who are we? What is my life about? And these are not questions 
that are just for when we have time to think about it, but they need to be more kind of um, <clears throat> available for other aspects. What I mentioned was that meditation is a, is a connection between ourselves and others. And so I feel that one of the basic elements that um, is where this could go is, is that it, this communication that we have with ourselves can begin to affect society. And so this is very much the notion of how we can take these very strong principles of our own deep-seated sense of dignity deep-seated sense of magnanimity, kindness, elements that are considered to be soft or weak. And so part of the culture shift is saying these elements are needed if we're going to have a sustainable culture and sustainable sort of environment for all of us to live in. And so these cultures of kindness, cultures of compassion, is kind of what we're exploring here. How can we make them seem practical and how can we make them seem normal in some ways and part of, part of our future? And so this is very much a notion of enlightening, illuminating what is really the strong aspects of who we are as, as people. And so this is, you know, what we refer to sometimes as creating an enlightened society, creating a more illuminated society, how we can actually have a society where people feel like things are being illuminated rather than we are in the shadows all the time. So how can we, make, how can we begin to make that switch? And I think, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're at the phase where how we want to live, um, how we want to see our story as a human being going forward is very much in our hands, and how we relate to that, and how and the, the communication we have with ourselves is very much part of that. And so, for me, the notion of how we begin to influence society is a very one-to-one -one situation. It's very hard to relate to many, many people, but if we can relate to one person, that begins to um, have the pathway being created. <clears throat> so I'd like to uh, share a story about where I begin to learn this notion of society being one-to-one, uh, -one, or you can just say, just you and me kind of notion. And this was many years ago. I was... <clears throat> invited to dinner um, by my father, and some of you uh, might know him. His name is uh, Chogyam Trongbarambache, and he was one of the most um, earliest Tibetan teachers, a great meditation master, scholar, to travel and come to Oxford University, and then he came to the United States and really began to teach Buddhism and meditation, and a lot of, a lot of what is happening now is due to his hard work. So, he was teaching the principles of meditation and mindfulness many, many years ago. And so <clears throat> I was quite young, and um, I knew who my father was. And uh, he had a very high voice. And he said to me uh, one morning, I think we should have dinner tonight. And so he was my father, so I was worried that dinner was something was going to happen at dinner. And, uh, and then I also knew that who he was as a, as a great master. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm going to get some secret transmission, you know. So I had both things going in my mind. And so dinner came, and I said, is anyone else? He goes, just you and me, and which made me more nervous. And uh, 
So we're sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to do something, or something's going to happen. And after a while, he said, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. And then he started, we started talking. And at a certain point, I began to relax. So it's just dinner. And I realized that, um, in fact, he was giving me a transmission, which was just simple human warmth and, and just kind of a sense of you know, um, <clears throat> two people being there. And what I you know, have begun to learn from kind of those very simple exchanges is that that is society. You know, whether we're, we're parents or husband and wife or friends, there is that very basic human communication. And I realized like just sitting there listening to his stories, I was developing empathy. You know? By just sitting through the meal, I was developing patience. And by listening and, and, and being there and being curious, I was developing intelligence. So a lot of these elements are, are so available to us. And as we communicate with others, we are creating and, and sewing the fabric. And we are sewing the fabric with our, how we regard ourselves and how we regard our other person. And our ethics, our values, uh, all these elements are, being very, are, are right there. And so those principles are kind of constantly within our own reach. And so I think one of the things that happens is that we all feel very powerless to do things when things become very kind of intense. And so one of the things that I really feel like I've learned is that you know, when you, at a daily level, you can begin to shift that if you begin to empower that communication, empower those thoughts and feelings in our mind and begin to respect that as we, as, as we extend it out. And so when you do that, it may not necessarily be dramatic, but all of a sudden it begins to have a very, very um, sort of you know, <clears throat> subliminal effect in some ways, begins, begins to be in the environment. And so to me, um, that is part of how uh, the shift needs to take place, that we begin to look at who we are as a human being if we're an educator in teaching, how we relate to the children, do we regard them as, as basically flawed, or do we base, regard them as basically good? Are we encouraging those elements? If we're working in healthcare, are we looking at our patient as fundamentally ill or inherently healthy? And so these very basic principles are at work and at play. And so when we um, are engaged in our, I would say, everyday living, that that is one of the most powerful aspects. And so one of the most important elements to me is, is that the wisdom that I feel like uh, we are exploring at this particular time needs to be actually integrated into our daily living, into our daily life, as opposed to these principles being separate from our daily, daily living. So in this way, I would say it's um, balancing <clears throat> two elements, you could say, what we're dealing with is how we are balancing power and how we're balancing love and how those elements are coming together. And so that is, I feel like right now, one of the most um, sort of important elements that we're dealing with. And I know that... Um, when 
the whole uh, movement of the civil rights was taking place, that was one of the most important elements um, for Martin Luther King was how can we as a society mix these two elements of power and love? And so right now, we are dealing with the notion of love in terms of the emotional quality, but also how we can mix that or you know, almost to see that they are inseparable. So right now, for many of us, um, we feel like these sort of soft issues are powerless, and therefore they cannot get traction. Uh, and at the same time, if we just see power, we think it is corrupt, and we think that it is abusive. So right now, we're in this very interesting phase of how we deal with the power to change things, but not losing the inherent human um, warm, warm heartedness. And so that is part of, uh, part of the, really the, um, I would say, deep contemplation, deep thought that we are engaged in right now. Uh, can, we go, can we begin to weave a fabric as we go, go forward with these principles, with a strong sense of power, with a strong sense of love in this way? So for myself, uh, I feel like the timing is such that as, as we go through this next period um, in history, we have an opportunity. And those opportunities um, are sort of being sort of woven as, as we think and feel right now. And to a certain degree, if we abstain, we are, even our abstaining from the process is creating the conditions for the future. And so we're very much in a time and place where the direction of the feeling of life, the feeling of who we are, and of human beings is being woven by our thoughts and feelings. So this is very, I feel like, important um, discussion. And I certainly hope that you know, there are other, other uh, platforms and, and ways that these discussions can take place. And I'm really happy that it is happening here and has been happening and will continue to happen. But that now these discussions of who are we, where do we go forward, and they can be discussed at the family level, at a communal level, begin to, begin to affect uh, many aspects of, of our society. So if you wish, um, I would like to just guide a short um, meditation, if you wish. It would only be one or two hours, if that's okay. <laughs> and what I, what I want to do is just, I know some of you do or do not meditate, but it's, to me it's a, a very simple thing of just connecting with who we are as a person. So a lot has brought everyone here tonight, different ideas and, and, and feelings. And to me, um, feeling our humanity is the basis. And accepting kind of, and that creates a lot of empowerment, and that is a lot of power. And so meditation is simply just being relaxed and present, and knowing that what is happening in our heart and mind is actually not meaningless, minor sensations, but there's a powerful thing that is taking place. 
and that even if we heard just for a minute or so, that that, that is, you know, at a, at a deep human level, there's a powerful ceremony taking place. So whatever our sort of faith is and what our own particular view is just connecting with who we are as a person. So just taking a good posture and breathing. If you wish, you can just exhale, get... And it is basically just connecting to where we feel right now as a person. As we got up today and had our day, and rather than thinking um, moments of life are meaningless, just appreciating what is happening. And for the time that we're here, just letting our sort of mind be present. Many things going on. allowing ourselves to be present and realizing that even though it is quiet, that it is still a very powerful transformation that is happening. Therefore, we're creating a level of peace, personally. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you'd like to ask some questions, please feel free. Thank you for that. Hello. Oh, hi. Um, how important is a mantra? To, to self-meditation? Um, 
it's a, a good mantra, then it's really important. Uh, you know, mantra is depending on really if it's connected with a visualization. Um, a lot of there's many levels of them. Sometimes it's just something that is consistent that you can come back to. Um, I think part of what I was trying to express is that whatever it is, we shouldn't make it take away from you. So there's a sense of connecting and working with who you are. Because a lot of meditation comes from the power of how you hold yourself. And then those techniques, whether it's a breathing technique or visualization, just enhance that. So one of the basic, it's very important to kind of, I always feel like know what you're doing when you're meditating, have at least some basic idea. Um, the way to think about it is like it's meditation, even though you're sitting still, it's like going for a walk or, or riding a horse. You're going on a journey. So you want to know at least what direction you're going. So you don't kind of make it up as you're going along. So from that point of view, it's, it's you know, important to have that sense. But um, yeah, mantra is very effective. And, um, but sometimes at the beginning, if it's too complicated, then it just gets distracting. So I think that's what I'm just saying. What, what level of relationship to the mantra you have? OK. Thank you. Uh, Rinpoche, you spoke a little bit about some work you were doing in Chicago, and I was hoping that you might be able to tell us a little bit about that. OK. Um, <clears throat> the last few years, I've been doing, uh, working with youth violence in Chicago. And uh, we've been doing sort of um, looking at the basic sort of you know, epidemic and, and kind of intensity of, of um, sort of the violence that's happening there, and we're working with the city and various neighborhoods and different faith groups, and working with a way to begin to bring either um, a sense of, I would say, really the notion of dignity and the notion of people being seen. And because um, a lot of the violence comes from the um, certain individuals never being actually their own dignity or their sense of who they are never been acknowledged. So then that then that leads to uh, revenge, and it relates to other um, sort of um, acts of violence. And so one of the you know, theories has been that it's almost, violence is almost like a disease, and it's contagious in a sense. And so it's how do you cut that process, and how do you intervene? And that intervening often is having dialogue and, and um, working with the situation. But I feel like um, you know, it's been you know, very intense, but it's also been very uh, we're making some some um, progress from that point of view, and beginning to change certain people's attitude in terms of what's happening. But you know, I'll be going back there again this year and to work with um, sort of the various neighborhoods, especially in Inglewood and the more affected areas, um, dealing with that sense of violence. And also, you know, um, they want peace, and we're working with just the idea of even imagining peace. Try, try to get people to even imagine what peace would be like. So at a neighborhood level, at a, from a family level, so I think that was a lot of the elements. But it's kind of coming back to what we've been talking about here. It comes back to how they regard themselves as people. And then from that, beginning to um, look at some kind of um, future. Right here. 
You want me to stand? Okay. Rinpoche, I'm so happy to see you. I feel nervous. <laughs> it's wonderful to see you. Thank you. Um, I work with young, disturbed addicts. And what I'm noticing, I'm trained as a meditation instructor in the Shambhala lineage and teach them meditation. My husband's a Zen sensei. He works with me. We work with their minds. We work with their bodies, everything. What I'm noticing is that there's actually a fear of peace. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can please help me help them with that. <clears throat> In terms of what? The fear of peace. Fear and the of peace. The mistrust yeah. of peace mm -hmm. and the fear of peace. And mm -hmm. these aren't inner city mm -hmm. young people. Mm -hmm. But there's a real mistrust mm -hmm. of the whole notion of peace. I think part of it is um, creating an environment um, <clears throat> where an individual can um, kind of relax in some ways and providing a uh, safe environment or a kind of a structured environment or a stable environment. And um, from that point of view, peace is not a state, you know, it's not, you don't have, it's just peace. Peace is kind of um, an attitude in the way you actually begin to approach life. And so there's almost like them even willing to work with their own situation is a level of peace. And so rather than seeing peace as an absent, you know, absence of violence or instability, um, I feel like it's an attitude of trying to um, <clears throat> kind of um, work with or trust yourself to work with a certain direction. And um, so part of, part of that is here is if we're going to have peace at a personal level or at a global level, um, it's a constant application. And um, part of that is working with the notion of being brave and working with bravery. And um, so that is a very, I feel like right, that's kind of what we're dealing with is there's so much overwhelm and so how do you begin to address that? And therefore, uh, there needs to be a sense of bravery taking place. How can, we, how can we have that? And if there's a lack of bravery, then obviously we cower and we kind of go back. And then there's no progress. So then the negative stuff starts accumulating. And so a lot of this is actually realizing that if you don't address the situation, it's not going to get necessarily better. And so how do we kind of create that environment without making people feel bad and feel guilty. And so I think that's really um, the thing. And that's what I was saying about the meditation. I don't want to make people feel more guilty that they're not meditating, you know? So that's not going to help, especially you. Yeah. One here? Thank you. Very simple question. Are there means other than meditation to achieving the self-awareness, dignity, and trust that, about which you have spoken? I would say, uh, I would say appreciation. Just appreciation of um, that. You know, one of the things is that respecting what you do, no matter what you're doing. So even if you're, you know, having tea or, or, or having conversation, there's a sense of that rather than being a ghost in your life, actually being present and appreciating it 
And so that sense of appreciation will bring that level of clarity. And then there's a lot of power. And I think a lot of times when we do very meaningful things is when we actually show up for our life and we show up for the conversation, right? And then all of a sudden it's very powerful. And it almost doesn't matter what you talk about or what you do. And it's that sense there. And so it's almost like, you know, another way to look at it is that there's so much richness in our experience and we want to be able to acknowledge that as opposed to kind of a cheapening of life where everything is very shallow. So it's like, how do you appreciate? And uh, that's what I was saying about meditation. If you approach meditation from the point of view of, <clears throat> of guilt, then you're kind of, you're probably not gonna be able to go deep with it. And in the same way, if you have simple activities, you need to be able to look at them and saying, oh, here's an opportunity for me to be present. And then when that occurs, you know, it's, it's, it's very uh, powerful. People even write poems about it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you've certainly heard the saying, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there by myself. Uh -huh. um, I wonder if you could talk um, a little bit about how to make your mind your ally in the meditation process. How to make your mind? Your own ally. That's a good title. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, meditation is, is um, it's like um, sort of being a clever parent, right? You, you take the moments where you can get it. So when you're working with yourself, you know your little tricks and so, but you also highlight where um, you are present and where you are developing. So it's almost like you can look at the negative, but part of this is you want to strengthen um, your potential, as it were, and, and, you know, and then also give each meditation session should have an intention. So there should be something, it's not necessarily goal-driven, but you need to know something. Often when you don't do that, your habits just take over. So you're kind of repeating the same thinking pattern and fantasy pattern and everything. So there needs to be some intention. And then meditation works in small cyclical cycles. That you'll have a moment of clarity and then you'll revert back seemingly. But rather than thinking about it as stagnation, it's like a wheel going forward. It kind of looks like it's getting worse, but you are, you are making progress. So there's that kind of you know, overall sense of, of, of uh, practice. But, um, you know, I would be happy with, uh, be happy with small achievements, you know, and, and kind of acknowledge that, and then you can build on those elements. So that's part of the ally part, you know. You have to be sort of, you have to have, even if you're doing mindfulness, you still have to have awareness. You have to have intelligence a little bit. Down here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Paul Anderson. I run a, a nonprofit here. It's called Huts for Vets. I take combat veterans into the wilderness for healing opportunities from their combat trauma. Um, and yet, nature being a very powerful influence, uh, humanity seems to have been warring against nature for the last 10,000 years. How does nature fit into a quest for peace or a relationship with nature? Well, 
<clears throat> I mean, that's obviously a very good question right now in terms of, um, but I, I feel like there's part of what we're dealing with is the human nature issue. So um, if there is internal deforestation, as it were, if there's, in, you know, erosion, then there's going to be naturally external erosion. We're not going to respect nature. We're not going to respect others. And so when everything becomes sort of, um, you know, uh, we don't feel anything. So it's not a matter of feeling bad or good, but it's a matter of just appreciating we do live in an environment. We live in our mental environment. We live in our physical environment. And so we begin to realize, oh, then I must live in a world. And how do we take care of that world? And when you begin to separate that, then I think you have, you know, imbalance. And a lot of it is, I think we're, what we're doing is with our technologies, we're reassessing sort of what balance is. You know, we, we're balancing in terms of us having a, a good life, but at the same time, is that coming at the expense of sort of a overall sort of um, imbalance taking place? And naturally, it is. But I think right now, my feeling is, is that the issues that we're dealing with at a social level do have a direct impact on, on nature. Now, nature, it seems like when you do the timeline, it kind of takes care of itself. It kind of comes back and recycles, and there's that process. Um, and so there's a kind of a larger cyclical aspect of life. And so part of, I think, my approach is more that, you know, life is more uh, cyclical than it is linear. So how we are, how, how we are going forward is that there seems to be, um, there could be times in the future where things do get worse, but that doesn't mean we have to give up on everything. And then naturally they will get, they will get better. And so there's that, we're in that kind of uh, cyclical process right now. Right, want to hear? Thank you, Rinpoche, for being here. My question is on the worldview of things. What could we do individually or collectively to help heal this jihadist, uh, ISIS, uh, nightmare that's going on on the planet, which is affecting all of us on one level or another. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I think one of the elements is, um, is <clears throat> when situations get, um, you know, I guess you could say there's two ways to respond to a situation when it's, it gets bad and it gets more challenging is that we begin, we tend to give up, we tend to slide back. So right now I think whatever principles that we really are important to us, if it's compassion or if it's understanding, whatever, you know, wisdom, it's important to even go further and try to solidify that. In many ways, we're being challenged. We're being challenged ideologically, we're being challenged ethically, we're being challenged stability-wise. And so we each have a way of responding with that. And clearly what is happening is that the cycle of violence has not led to long-term stability, um, personally or geopolitically. And so we're at a, we're at a point where, you know, how human, how human beings regard each other. Um, disrespect of certain cultures and individuals have created certain cycles of violence. So it's a time where this very, you know, this very topic of how, how we regard ourselves, what are the values that we're working with, um, how can we work with a more you know, human-based understanding of things um, is, is even more center stage than ever. And so right now we're being tested. And so to me, it's, you know, being, um, you know, working with kindness at even a deeper level, um, working with these elements at even a deeper level. 
And even though it may seem you know, futile in some ways or, 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 or sort of overwhelmed. And also, I think, um, not giving up on, on human connectivity, you know. And so if we begin to really not trust anybody, then obviously we're in a very difficult situation. So how do you begin to, even at a personal level, trust each other and, and, and not afraid to love each other and, and have that, like, human simplicity? That, that power is very powerful and can be a way of, of you know, balancing sort of the intensity. But, you know, this is something we're all facing, and I think we're all challenged by it. There's, there's, um, we have our best minds working on it, as it were, and we need to also get our best hearts working on it, too. Thank you very much, everyone. This podcast was brought to you by the Grassroots Community Network. Check out more of your favorite programs, browse our video on demand, and subscribe to our social media channels at www.grassrootstv.org.